That's baby talk. That's what we're going to talk about today. But I hope not in that ridiculous way. This is Giles Brandreth welcoming you to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. Fortunately, there is a grown-up in the room, or at least on the line. <laughs> Are you there, Susie Dent? I am. Hello. It's good to be with you. We're going to talk about baby talk today because, and in fact, we must thank Purple People for the suggestion. We're going to be discussing babies and coming to Liam Gordon, Andrew Wilkinson and Anna Collins' questions that were sent in all about babies and baby talk. So but, but before we, we start actually discussing the little terrors, the tots, <laughs> the sprogs, all good words, we'll know about those. Last week, I set Susie a challenge of finding out who had she met at one remove? Because I was boasting about, the, well, the game I play, where I think, you know, I met so-and-so, and that means at one remove I met so-and-so. Like, I've met Christopher Robin, Christopher Robin Milne, which means I've shaken the hand that um, held the paw of Winnie the Pooh. And last week, I think I was telling you about how I'd met a man who, as a child, had shaken the hand of Stalin, the Russian dictator. So at one remove, I can say I've met Stalin. Who have you met of interest at one remove? Well, you sent me this challenge and I failed, Giles. I thought for at least an hour I was mulling over this thing, thinking I must have been at one remove, at least one remove from someone incredible. In you know, in the course of countdown, I've sat next to fantastic people. So surely in shaking their hands metaphorically or otherwise, I would have been at one step removed from someone even more amazing. But I just can't think of anyone. I've met, I suppose, what some people would think of, you know, famous people. But the one step removed from someone absolutely interstellar, I can't think. Have you met any senior members of the royal family? Have you met the Queen? I haven't met the Queen. I have met Prince Philip because oh. I did the Duke of Edinburgh Awards. Congratulations. Uh, so that was his last one, actually, that I, I was at. Well, if you've met the Duke of Edinburgh, you have at one remove met almost Every great figure of the 20th century, from Nelson Mandela through yeah. to Frank Sinatra. Wow. OK. So that's fantastic. We're going to talk today about babies. Mm -hmm. At the suggestion, prompted really by a variety of purple people and their correspondence with us. So, I mean, do you remember being a baby? I have a vague recollection of being stung on the bottom by a bee, because I think I sort of somehow sat on one in my pram. It's a really vague, blurry memory of that. But no, I don't really. I, w I wish that my memories did go back a very, very long way, but they don't. I think one of my earliest memories is actually just sitting in the back of the car and just, I remember just kind of zoning into kind of conversations. It's, it's hard. It's a sort of fairly amorphous kind of blurry recollection that I have. But no, do you remember being a baby? No, I don't. And almost nobody does, no. really. I, I went and did some homework on this at something called the Baby Lab at the University of Cambridge. And there I discovered that babies are actually born with memories. And it's from 22 to 24 weeks of gestation. That's wow. when the unborn... Born with memories. You're born wow. with memories, yes. So uh, the, an unborn baby's memory is beginning to form after about uh, 22 weeks. And from 30 weeks onwards, it's beginning to recognise and remember things. Like, for example, uh, the baby's mother's voice, her smell. Yeah. So that actually b babies come out uh, born with memories of a voice, a smell, a piece of music. 
But it is curious the way few adults can recall specific moments before about their third birthday. And obviously we're remembering things before we're, we're born onwards and we're, we're learning how to move and how to communicate. And obviously we have to remember all that. We're learning uh, what we like and we don't like and remembering what we're learning. But why can't we recall that stuff? And the research that they shared with me suggests that the number of neurons being created in the brain cells of infants and the rapidity of their creation actually interferes with the storage of long-term mm. memory. So you're so busy at that early stage picking up everything and learning it that actually the, the, the part of your hippocampus mm -hmm. where your memories are stored gets in the way of that. You can't do too many things at once. So that's, that's intriguing, fascinating. isn't it? fascinating. Um, and there's also motherese. I mean, you were doing a bit of fatherese at the beginning of this. And um, there's also been quite a lot of research into motherese. Motherese is the, the kind of type of language that we use and the intonations and the rhythms that we use when talking to a baby. So rather than talking to a baby as I'm talking to you now, you would say, Hey, how are you doing? Um, look at this. You know, that that the sort of the rising, sort of slightly what we would consider mm. to be babyish intonations, etc., are apparently quite important. And there's been a lot of um research done into language acquisition. Of course, children whose parents spend time talking with them understand and respond to and develop their language better than those parents who speak less. I mean, I suppose that's fairly inevitable. But it, as far as motherese is concerned, apparently infants who heard more baby talk, because their parents spoke motherese, knew more words than those um, children of those who didn't speak with that kind of slightly more intelligible, slower kind of rhythm and intonation, which is fascinating. And it feeds into, you know, my obsession with learning poetry by heart. Yeah. The reason I went to the baby lab is because I had this gut feeling that if you teach small children poems, they're going to have greater facility with the language. And it turns out that it's absolutely true for the reason you're explaining. And that actually, that's why nursery rhymes work for small children and why they like repeating them. And if you speak rhythmical, musical poetry to your baby before it's born, it will increase its capacity for being comfortable with language when it is born. So it's valuable to talk to your children and in a clear, rhythmical way. So don't be frightened of singing songs to them or doing nursery rhymes with them. Oh, no. Let's kick off now. Yeah. And we're kicking off with a, with a question. And it's about the word nurse, N-U-R-S-E. Yeah. And it came from Liam Gordon, who's recently become a dad for the first time. Congratulations on uh, your contribution to that, Liam. More so, congratulations to the mother of the uh, mm. child, who's the real achiever, well and to the little child, uh, his or herself. Anyway, he says, it's the noun for the medical profession, but also the verb for breastfeeding a child. Mm. And what Liam wants to know is which one came first? Well, you'll understand the link between the two once you know the etymology, because both go back to the Latin nutritius, which meant a person that nourishes. So the verb to nurse is actually a kind of shortening of nourish, if you like. And that's where you get the noun from as well. So in terms of the one that came first, I think it would be the breastfeeding sense, because that is the, you know, the, the nourishment directly, if you like. I'm just double checking here, as I always do in the OED, lots and lots and lots of different meanings. The first one was to rear, to bring up, 
to nurture and the breastfeeding sense is from 1530 so that's very soon after the first senses of looking after as someone began to emerge so nurture, nurturing is where it begins yes nourishing and when does it slip into the into the medical from from the sort of domestic nurture into being a person we think of as a nurse in a uniform, in a hospital? Not long after. And as always with the, these things, you know, we're always in the Oxford English Dictionary, we're always looking for earlier evidence. We're always on the search for what we call anti-datings, which are even earlier records than the ones that have been found already. So in 1562, there is a record of nursing, meaning to care for a person during sickness or infirmity. So the idea of breastfeeding acting as a wet nurse was recorded, well, 30 years earlier. So it's quite possible that they arose in parallel, but the link between the two is nourishment. Do you know much about wet nursing? I mean, it's an interesting phrase in itself. A wet nurse is somebody who breastfeeds a baby on your behalf, on on somebody else's behalf. Yes. And much more common, obviously, historically than than these days. Um, So... Uh, Explain why. Do you know why? Why it was more common? Well, I mean, sometimes if you think about, you know, the, the sort of more... Well, I suppose a proliferation of death during certain times in the past, in the Middle Ages, whether from plague or whatever. And wet nurses were employed if the mother dies. Um, but of course, there was also, you know, taking over if a, if a mother chooses not to nurse the child herself or if she can't. So historically, I mean, nursing itself is a, it's an ancient practice. But I think quite often the aristocracy or the nobility had their children wet nursed. They thought for the benefit of the child's health, but also there was an imperative of becoming pregnant again quickly. And when you're breastfeeding, it sometimes acts as a contraceptive. So you don't then conceive as easily. And it, you know, breastfeeding is supposed to inhibit ovulation and that kind of thing. So certainly in, in wealthy families, but from Roman times as well, you know, there was, I think there was even sort of controversy then about whether a wet nurse actually inhibited the relationship between the mother and a child. So, um, you know, those kind of arguments have prevailed for a very long time. This is an area about which I know absolutely nothing, despite having three children and seven grandchildren, I'm a little bit squeamish when it comes to medical matters and certainly personal matters. So you're going to have to guide me and lead me through this. I attended the birth of all three of my children. The first one, I'm not sure. I think there was a high drama with the first one. So I was there until the consultant told me to go and walk around the block a few times Uh and come back when it was all over. With the second one, I was there and enthusiastic. With the third one, I was there in theory enthusiastic, but I actually fainted. Or began oh, to faint, and the the midwife or one of the nurses escorted me out of the room. So I don't really know much about what happens, but all of it it seems a little bit personal. But take me through some of the words. I, I do know that the umbilical cord is involved once the baby is born, uh, and somebody cuts it. Tell me about the umbilical cord. Linguistically speaking, it's related to the Greek omphalos, which itself is from a really ancient root that actually gave us lots of different things. It gave us uh, the Latin umbo, which was the boss of a shield. It gave us umbilicus, the navel, and also in Greek, as I say, it gave us the sense of the uh, of the tummy button, which is what I used to call it. And actually, there's a great word, omphaloskepsis, and that is the contemplation of one's navel. And actually, in Eastern mysticism, navel gazing was supposed to bring on a kind of emotional self-awareness. But of course, if we call someone a navel gazer these days, they are entirely self-obsessed is the is the implication there. But 
Omphalos actually, through lots and lots of twists and turns, also gave us the word navel. So you've got the umbilical cord and then attached to that is the placenta, of course. And that is the, it's like a circular organ in the uterus of pregnant mammals and it it nourishes and kind of maintains the fetus through through the umbilical cord and placenta goes back to greek again for a, a flat plate and originally as so often greek passed through latin where it was placenta uterina meaning a uterine cake because of the shape because it's so flat and it is the most incredible thing in terms of the blood flow through there i mean i think within five minutes the entire blood that her body contains rushes through this umbilical cord in the placenta it's extraordinary Good grief. How extraordinary. The uterus. You mentioned the uterus. What's that and what's the origin of that word? Uterus is really interesting. So do you remember that the hysterical was once believed or hysteria was once believed to be a condition or a disease that was exclusive to women because it was due to the uterus or the womb moving about within the body. So the idea is that the hustera, as the uterus was called in Greek, that it moved around the body and this kind of wandering around made a woman prone to outbursts and uncontrollable emotions. Hence, hustera gave us hysterectomy, which is the removal of the womb, but it also gave us hysterical um, and the idea of being hysterically funny. Hysterically funny, again, because you're kind of bursting out in an uncontrollable way. So that's the uterus. It's the, the organ located in the um, the female pelvis. And then once the egg has left the ovary, it can be fertilised and then it implants itself in the lining of the uterus. That is what happens. And ovary is very simple because that's as, as in over egg. Yes. So that one we've got. Yes. So we've got the ovary, we've got the, the uterus, we've got the umbilical cord. When we know we're going to be uh, about to give birth, there's the breaking of the waters. And that is literally what it says, is it? Yes, that is just a, a significant leak. Oh, uh, God. The fluids. Yeah, and then we are, and out comes the baby, mm-hmm. head first, feet first, whichever. Um, I can't remember. Usually head first. Usually head first. If it's feet first, then it is a breech baby. And actually, oh. I had a really interesting time of it. My first child, my eldest daughter, was said to be in breech. Um, and so what they tend to recommend is that the baby is then turned manually in a hospital so that it is actually presenting in the right way because a breech birth can cause complications and I think normally then a cesarean is planned. So breech is connected to the buttocks. So it's the kind of hind part of anything. So if you imagine that that a breech birth is when the kind of the buttocks and the legs and the sort of the behind bit. Wearing your breeches is, comes is exactly. covering your behind, yeah. Exactly. So I was told the baby would have to be turned and I was slightly worried about this because it sounded quite invasive. And when I was working at um, Oxford University Press, a colleague said, have you tried moxibustion? Now, moxibustion involves the burning of moxa or or sort of herbs and producing heat. And heat has always had quite a profound effect on my body. So you know that I'm always freezing, Giles. I'm always hugging a hot water bottle. So I thought, well, I'll give this a go. So I went to an acupuncture clinic where they did moxibustion. And there's a lot of belief in this. There's a sort of Korean heat treatment, hand treatment, where they sort of heat your your palms to increase blood flow and immunity and that kind of thing. Anyway, I was lying there and it involved burning some moxa, some herbs near my feet. And 
the baby turned there and then. No. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you know, if you don't believe in this kind of thing, it might well have been a coincidence. But actually, I felt very faint and I was very worried that I'd done some damage. So The baby simply revolved within within you. Yes, I didn't realise that is what happened. I just knew I felt very, very faint. And I thought, what have I done? So I went to the hospital and they said, oh, no, she's, she's in the right position. How extraordinary. I mean, maybe it was a, a coincidence. I'm not sure. But I know my body responds very, very well to heat. So, you know, a lot of people think I'm very quirky for believing that. But it, it definitely seemed to have that effect that day. But again, we're not medical experts and I'm really not. I'm not advocating this because I don't know the dangers involved, but that was my story. You mentioned the word caesarean there. Yes. Now, the origin of that is something to do with Julius Caesar, I know. What, yeah. what is it? It's a story that Julius Caesar was delivered by this method and was one of the first to be delivered through that kind of opening up of the body. But there is, I think, scant evidence to support it. But certainly that was the belief that grew, hence C-section. So in essence, I mean, I'm saying this because there are um, we have children listeners, what happens is you're cut open and the baby comes out through the incision yes. rather than the normal way. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes it's a necessity. I don't know if you've read Adam Kay's This Is Gonna Hurt, um, his brilliant account of being a junior doctor based on his diaries. I know it's hilarious. Yes, it is hilarious and um, lo- lots and lots of talks of C-section. But I remember one thing, sort of, obviously this would linger with me, where he, he said he did an analysis of all the surgeons in the particular hospital he was working in of the way that they spelled caesarean. And he concluded that 90% of them were spelling caesarean wrong. So this was their kind of key job in life. And you know, they were spelling I-A-N rather than E-A-N at the end. Oh, I see. I thought maybe they're getting the Caesar part uh, wrong because it is, it's as in Julius Caesar, the name, C-E-S-A-E-R. Yes, C-A-E-S-A-R-E-A-N. I love the way you call it a C-section as though this is some a phrase that's on everybody's lips. A C-section means a caesarean, does it? Yeah, I think, I think most women who go for an elective caesarean would call it C-section, yeah. Going for a C-section. Okay, the baby then emerges. Yes. We must take a break in a moment, I know, but but let's get the baby at least out into the world. (laughs) And the head comes first, we hope, and that's when the word fontanelle comes in, because it's something to do with the head, isn't it? Yeah, so the fontanelle is this little sort of indent on a baby's skull. It's the space between the bones of the skull, and it's because the forming of the bones, the ossification, isn't yet complete. So that goes back to the Latin um, and then through French, fontanelle, um, and it's linked to fontaine, meaning a fountain. And the analogy there is that there's a dent in the earth where a spring or a fountain emerges, and then it, it, it kind of refers metaphorically to the hollow in a baby's skull. Now the baby has emerged, I think we should take a break. Um, Unless you've got any other pre-birth words that you feel we must introduce? No, I don't think so. I mean, I just remember the sort of the euphemism really that uh, was applied to both of my births where uh, my babies were both induced or at least birth was induced. And induced always sounded quite gentle (laughs) to me when in fact it it can kind of come on hard and strong. So uh, no, that's the only one that that I can think of. To be honest, the pre-birth thing is a bit of a blur for me. Yeah, well, it was certainly a blur for me when I fainted. (laughs) Okay, we'll take a break and then baby is born. We better put on the nappy. Or is that a diaper? 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. This is Something Rhymes With Purple. I'm Giles Brandreth, father of three who knows virtually nothing about... uh, Though my wife did become pregnant, so I think I was involved in that. (laughs) And um, pregnant, where does that word come from? So, yeah, pregnant is, again, from Greek. It's interesting, isn't it? So, so often we get our words from Greek and then they go via Latin and then they come uh, to us. But it goes back to uh, the Greek for before birth. So, pre, if you take the pre of pregnant, that means before. And then um, there's G-N-A-S-C-I, meaning birth. So, pregnant simply means you are representing a before birth. Now, this has all been triggered by purple people. And purple person Andrew Wilkinson he wrote in uh, to say that he'd been rereading George Orwell's uh, great novel, 1984. And he was surprised to see that George Orwell had used the phrase diapers, mm. the word diapers, instead of nappies, mm. uh, as he thought uh, diapers was a, an Americanism. Mm. Uh, so has the word diaper been used in British English at any stage? And if not, why did Orwell use it. Yeah, it's one of those things where we assume that it's American because that's become the predominant word over there. But uh, yes, we did use it. It comes from the Greek diasporos, meaning across white. And it originally denoted quite a costly fabric. But then after the 15th century, it was used in the sense that we know it as today. But babies' nappies were originally made from pieces of this fabric. And in fact, napkins and towels and cloths could also be diapers in, in Britain from the uh, the 16th century. But then napkin took over that side of things for us and then diaper crossed the Atlantic and became the predominant word in the US. But certainly we used to uh, talk about it as well. And when you think about the aspros, the white side of it, that also gave us aspirin. I was very good at changing nappies, it must be said, with my three children. Good. And we didn't do use disposable nappies. We used old-fashioned linen nappies. Yeah. I remember there was something called nappy-san, in which one then placed these nappies after use. And when I was in my 20s and our babies were small, my, my hands were all sort of wrinkled and calloused, I felt, with this nappy-san. Maybe it wasn't the nappy sand. I don't want them suing us if it still exists. We've got quabbled hands, as they used to put it. So oh. quabbled means all kind of wrinkled from too much washing in uh, in English dialect. But that's exactly what happens with anti-back, isn't it? The more you anti-back your hands, they use the antibacterial hand gel, the worse they become. I mean, my hands have just become 
ghosts of their former selves. So feel comfortable if you do use the word diaper. It isn't an Americanism, though they use it in American. And we're going to be talking actually more about American versus British English in a couple of weeks' time when we're exploring uh, the world of Noah Webster and his dictionary. And speaking of American versus British words, a cot versus a crib. Hmm. My children, we had a cot, we had an old-fashioned cot with with the sides that you pulled up and could lower down. What's the origin of a cot? Well, that's actually, it started life as an Anglo-Indian word for a kind of bedstead. So it goes back to Hindi, in fact. And it was kind of also, as well as a sort of light bedstead, it could also be used for a shelter. So that's where we get cottage from. And also the coat as in dovecoat too. So the idea of a shelter. So that's where we get cot from. And then crib is, you know, we we associate cribs with nativity plays, etc. And it's extremely old. And it is, it's from Old English. And that's actually Germanic. So it's related to lots of different Germanic languages. And in German, they have a krippe, I think. And then, of course, it was given new life in slang. So your crib became your house. So it's almost like we've gone full circle and gone back to that idea that's there in cot of of a shelter. I seem to remember in The Importance of Being Earnest, where the plot revolves on when a baby baby being stolen or mislaid, the word bassinet comes up. Mm. And I I assume that's a kind of word that was popular in Victorian Edwardian times, but isn't any longer used. But what is is a a bassinet? It's not a basin for washing babies in, is it? No, it does come from the French for a small sort of basin-shaped object. And it's actually a child's wicker cradle. So I think the wicker is important here. And I, I certainly remember calling the wicker cradle that I had a bassinet. So I think the word is still in currency. That, that you had for yourself to cradle in or that you had for your girls? Yes, that I had my girls in, a bassinet. In a little bassinet. Mm. That's nice. Mm. And did you push them around in a in a pram or in a buggy? We are of the generation, because I'm a generation older than you, where we had a pram, had- which I know is short for perambulator. And yes. it was a high it was a high thing with big wheels and it cost an awful and an amazing amount of money. With the first child, we went berserk and we, we spent a fortune on little mittens and endless nightshirts and all these real linen napkins and this huge perambulator, which was rather grand, I must say. Yeah. And I, I liked it. I'm sorry we've, we've lost it. But Pram is abbreviation perambulator. Which means walking around. Yes. Yeah. Simple as yeah, that. Yeah, and I think those have come back into fashion. I think prams are sort of quite big now. But um, we don't know where buggy comes from. Really? Its origin is unknown. And originally it was a horse-drawn vehicle for one or two people. Uh, and in North America, I think it had four wheels. But yes, so that we, we have no idea where that word comes from. Well, if you think out there, purple people, that you do know the origin of buggy, do put us right. And then Susie Dent, who has uh, immediate access to the Oxford English Dictionary because she used to work there and they know her and she knows them, will get it into the dictionary if you really can prove it. Uh, one more American versus British, uh, dummies versus pacifiers. There was lots of controversy over this as well, I remember. Should you allow the child? to have a dummy or not. I say, give it a dummy. Uh, Shut it up. It's a nightmare having children in many ways. Uh, The exhaustion never ends. Which is it, dummy or pacifier? Well, today you would definitely say that a dummy is British English and a pacifier is American English. I prefer pacifier because that is the idea, isn't it? So pacifier has got a long history in English as a personal thing that pacifies someone. And then that was uh, narrowed down upon in North American English for a rubber teat for a baby to suck on. And then the dummy, the idea is that it's a substitute for the real 
thing, which is the nipple in this case. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Anna <laughs> Collins uh, from the Wirral, or is it Wirral? There's controversy over that as well, and controversy. She's asked <laughs> if the origin of the phrase is correct. Baths consisted of a big tub filled with hot water. Uh, the man of the house had the privilege of the nice clean water, then all the other uh, sons, the men, and then, then the women were allowed into the bath, and finally the children. Last of all came the babies. By then the water was so dirty you could actually lose someone in it. Hence the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do you think that's true? I think it sounds to me a little bit like a pop etymology, but let me, um, I'm going to look this up so you can hear me doing it. Um, I will tell you when it first comes. I can, you know, there's the, also the expression wet behind the ears. Yeah. That actually goes back to a German phrase meaning the same thing. And the idea there is that Behind the ears is the last after a new uh, a baby is born. It's the last area to to dry out. So mm. I am looking now, baby out with the bathwater to reject what is essential or beneficial, along with what is inessential or harmful. In early use, it was to empty the baby out with the bath. And again, interestingly, this comes from German. So in this case, it's das Kind mit dem Bade ausschütten, meaning the same thing, and. The German expression was kind of, you must empty out the bathing tub, but not the baby along with it. But it doesn't actually say, it doesn't give the sort of backstory to that and whether it was indeed that the babies were the last to have it. But as I'm afraid that I'm always the party pooper in this kind of thing. And I always tend to say, well, unless there's proof, I think it's unlikely. So sorry about that. Speaking of party poopers, one day we must talk about all those funny words like poo-poo and pee-pee. And we oh, euphemisms. Euphemisms for things to do with, with babies. And also, near Christmas, we must do a Babes in the Wood episode. I mean, uh, we can talk about Babes in the Wood when we get down to talking about pantomimes. Um, immediately, yeah. we've, got, we've already... I mean, thank you, Purple People, for inspiring us. Your correspondence means a lot to us. Open our letter bag for this week, would you, Susie? Yeah, well, before we hear this week's questions, Giles, I would like to give Thomas Joy a bit of a shout out. So he came on Countdown a little while ago and he's an absolutely passionate purple person. And do you remember telling us the story of when you were out on your canal series, uh, one of your trips, you had someone rush up to you and say, I'm a purple person. Mm. It was just lovely. I mean, Thomas Joy, he was a joy to have on the show. So I wanted to give him a shout out. And talking about Countdown, I've spoken before about the brilliant Craig Roberts and his oh, adorable guide dog called Bruce. And he's been in touch to tell us about his newly created Facebook page for the show, which he's called Something Rhymes with Purples, Purple People. That's a tongue twister and a half. Something Rhymes with Purples, Purple People. So he says, do go and check it out if you would like to. So thank you to both Thomas and to Craig and Bruce. Good. Bang to rights. This is from Joe in, is it Geelong or Geelong, Australia? I'm not sure. And I'm sorry, Joe, that I don't know this and I should have looked it up. But either way, we were very grateful that you wrote in. And so, yes, she wants to know about Bang to Rights because she was watching an old episode of A Touch of Frost, which is a British detective programme. And Jack claimed he had caught someone bang to rights. Where does it come from? The answer is it means caught red-handed of a criminal. Red-handed um, was uh, created because the idea was that somebody's hand would still be fresh with uh, the blood that they had spilt. Um, and the first 
mention of Bang to Rights is from 1904, and it's actually a book on life in Sing Sing uh, in the prison, and Bang to Rights caught in the act. But we think the idea is a prison door slamming shut on you, because if you're caught Bang to Rights, prison is the inevitable outcome, and the door will shut bang on you. And Bang to Rights is that, you know, this is what the law demands, the, the rights of the law will make sure that you are incarcerated. And of course, in British slang, we also call prison the clink, don't we? And that goes back to an original prison that was in London. So the history of prisons is is um, fascinating, actually. Maybe that's another episode that we could do. Yes, let's go to jail and not collect £200. Okay. <laughs> OK, Susie, it's time for your trio. Three interesting, unusual words that you feel need to be popularised once more. I was wondering the other day whether these actually do actually ever... Succeed, whether, whether I ever succeed in getting back into the language. I like to think that apricity, the warmth of the sun on a chilly day, is making inroads. Let's hope so. But the three today, do you remember, Giles, me talking about twankling? And to twankle was to kind of play idly on a musical instrument. Yes. Well, here's another one for you. To dop it from Ooh. English dialect is to play a musical instrument rather jerkily. Basically that, sums up what I try me. to do. Yes, exactly. It happens to me when I try <laughs> to play the clarinet after many years. To dop it. To dop it. To dop like it. it. If you have someone in your life that likes complaining, you might find them pleeping a lot. To pleep. P-L-E-E-P. To speak in a querulous tone of voice. I like that. Pleeping. I'm pleeping. pleeping. Oh, yes, I'm pleeping here. Oh, go on. And uh, this one is similarly onomatopoeic. Um, I just love this one. It's um, again from dialect and it's pluffy. And to be pluffy is to be fat and fluffy. I like to think that we would apply it to scones or that kind of thing. But pluffy is just gorgeous. Or an adorable baby. They can exactly. Often be Why fluffy. Don't I, think of that? I love a little plump, pluffy baby. <laughs> How beautiful. Perfect. Three good words and my poem. This week is about babies. Well, about a baby. It's called Morning Song. It's by Sylvia Plath. Love set you going like a fat gold watch. The midwife slapped your foot soles and your bald cry took its place among the elements. Our voices echo, magnifying your arrival. New statue. In a drafty museum, your nakedness shadows our safety. We stand round, blankly as walls. I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement of the wind's hand. All night, your moth breath flickers among the flat pink roses. I wake to listen. A far sea moves in my ear. One cry, and I stumble from bed, cow-heavy and floral in my Victorian nightgown. Your mouth opens, clean as a cat's, the window square whitens and swallows its dull stars. And now you try your handful of notes. The clear vowels rise like balloons. Gosh, that's mesmerising, that poem. Can you give us the title again? I will. It's a remarkable poem by a remarkable poet, Sylvia Plath, born 1932, died 1963, Morning Song. 
Morning Song. That is just beautiful. I have a copy of the Bell Jar on my shelves. Actually, I need to I need to return to it because I've not not read it for a very long time. But that is absolutely stunning. Thank you to all the purple people who have made the effort to get in touch. We do um, really appreciate it, and you'll be used to this request by now. But if you do like us, we'd love you to recommend us to your friends and just get in touch to tell us. Or if there's something we're doing wrong, then please tell us too. It's purple at something else.com. Something rhymes with purple is a something else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, and the person that we're all longing to see, but I have to say it's not happened today. It's Bluffy Gully. 